0: reading from the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians, beginning in the eighth chapter. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been granted to the churches of Macedonia. For during a severe ordeal of affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For as I can testify, they voluntarily gave according to their means and even beyond their means, begging us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in this ministry to the saints. And this not merely as we expected. They gave themselves first to the Lord, and by the will of God to us, so that we might urge Titus that as he has already made a beginning, so he should also complete this generous undertaking among you. Now, as you excel in everything—in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in utmost eagerness, and in our love for you, so we want you to excel also in this generous undertaking. I do not say this as a command, but I am testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. I do not mean that there should be relief for others and pressure on you, but it is a question of a fair balance between your present abundance and their need so that their abundance may be for your need in order that there may be a fair balance. As it is written, the one who had much did not have too much and the one who had little did not have too little. The word of the Lord.
1: May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. In Matthew 13, Jesus gives a series of parables about God's kingdom. And there's two of those parables that Jesus speaks that come back to back, and I think both of them speak particularly clearly to the modern malaise. And they are the parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price. And they're actually very, very short. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. I think one of the things that's so stunning about these parables is the simple clarity of both of the protagonists. They have a clarity that has prophetic urgency in modern life. I don't know about you, but don't you feel pulled in too many directions? Almost all the time. You've got responsibilities at home and with your family, You're striving for success in school or in your career. You're trying to manage your investments in retirement. You're trying to achieve work-life balance. Or for those of us that are under 40, maybe you're wondering what a retirement is. If you figure that out, let me know. We're working on mindfulness, self-care. All of these things are pulling at us. I heard recently that with the advent of smartphones, we're now distracting ourselves every three minutes. I also read recently that the average American family logs 1,000 hours more a year at work than they did just a few decades ago, 1,000 hours more a year. I don't think you need me to tell you that for all of our technological and economical advances in the West, we're not really happier. Our divorce rates are higher. Our suicide rates are higher. Our addictions to body and mind-numbing drugs are higher. Despite demanding and, for the most part, attaining for ourselves unlimited choices about who or what we want to become, by nearly all metrics of actual happiness, we have entered a phase of recidivism rather than progressivism. We're striving after something, and it is eluding us at every turn. Last week uh, on the plane, I watched All the Money in the World, which, if you're not trapped in a seat for 11 hours, it's not really worth your time. But, you know, <laughs> it, was, it was kept my attention when I needed it to. Based, have you guys heard this movie? It's based on the true story of the kidnapping of J. Paul Getty's grandson. J. Paul Getty, the famous billionaire, of course, he's this crotchety old man. There's this scene where Getty's security manager is working to get this grandson back. And he comes to his boss and he says, we, like, we need to pay the ransom, okay? We just, we have to, or they're going to kill him. And Getty responds by saying he can't afford to pay because he's never been so financially insecure as he is at this very moment. And the security manager responds by saying, you just told me The markets were way up. You have literally never been richer, and there has never been anyone richer than you in this moment in history. How much more do you need to feel secure? Get responds with one word, more. And if you think that this is just some Hollywood writer's way of surmising, you know, capitalist America gone wrong, there's actually a study that was done in recent years of the richest of the rich in the United States. And almost all of them said they felt financially insecure. There were people with hundreds of millions of dollars, and they said, I will not feel that I am financially secure in providing for my children until I reach a billion or another billion. Now, most of us are not on those phone calls, right? They didn't have my number for that survey. But I would dare say that at some level, all of us in this room have had our imaginations hooked by some version of the American dream, that if we could just join the right gym or go on the right diet or live in the right neighborhood, marry the right person, have the right career or the right number of zeros in our bank account, then we'll what? Find immortality? Deification? There's something in our imaginations that has been hooked by this idea that we can save ourselves if we can just get a little bit more. But One of the things that's so scandalous about the Christian story of the world, especially as it's on display in Christian scripture, is that pretty much all the suffering and destruction in the world can be traced back to this one core idea that we have demanded the right to define the good life in our own terms rather than submit our wills and our lives to the good life as God has defined it. Our version of the good life is self-referential, it's self-centered, and it opens up a bottomless pit of need and greed. It's just that most of us will never become rich enough to truly realize that it's bottomless. That all the money in the world won't actually Satisfies. Jim Carrey had just a brief moment of lucidness in an interview one time, and he said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Everything that he accomplished in his life didn't actually make him happy. And what's so jarring about these parables of Jesus in Matthew 13, of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price, is that the protagonists each encounter something from outside of themselves, outside their value systems, that so captures their imaginations that they are willing to give up everything else in order to be captured by it. This is something that the ancients called single-mindedness or single-heartedness. And it's something I dare say that we would be willing to spend thousands of hours and dollars in therapy in order to attain. To have that kind of mental clarity and emotional clarity in our lives. To not be pulled in so many directions all the time. To have this one thing that so captures our attention that it sheds light and brings meaning to our every breath, every movement, every word, every moment of our lives. To be single hearted. In St. Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church that we had read for us this morning, this is essentially how he describes the Macedonian Christians to the Christians in Corinth, that they were single-hearted, single-minded. They had an order of purpose that was as clear and strong as a person finding buried treasure in a field and then exerting every energy, every resource to buy that field with the treasure in it. What was this singleness of mind and heart that the Macedonian Christians had? Paul says they gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord. Paul here is setting up a contrast between the church in Macedonia and the church in Corinth. It's just that Paul's really polite, so he's not going to come out and say, Boy, you guys are not really getting it. Instead, he's going to tell them about a community that is really getting it and show them how they measure up, right? As you heard in our reading, the Macedonian Christians were very poor. For a guy like Paul, who literally has nothing, to say that someone else is in extreme poverty, we should perk up and listen. The Macedonian Christians were very very poor. They barely had enough to survive themselves and definitely had no excess money to give to anyone. The Corinthian church, on the other hand, was quite rich. Maybe not each and every individual, but as a whole, by and large, they were quite wealthy and they had excess income to spare. And Paul begins to contrast these two churches in their response to a very particular need. The church in Jerusalem was also very poor and had immense needs, and the Corinthian Christians had actually talked a pretty big game about helping them out, but they hadn't yet followed through. check was in the mail. The Macedonians, on the other hand, with their meager resources, had pulled together an offering for their brothers and sisters in the church in Jerusalem and had given with immense joy. As you heard Paul say, they were begging to be included in this opportunity to give. It was almost as if they were so poor that Paul wasn't even going to bother talking with them about it. And they're like, no, no, no. Give us the chance to give. And the reason that Paul gives that the Macedonians had been so generous, even in the face of their own lack, was due to their singleness of heart and mind. They had already given themselves away to the Lord. What does that mean? they've given themselves first to the Lord. It would take weeks, I think, to unpack that idea, but at one level, what Paul is saying is that the Macedonians had had their imagination radically captured and reordered by a treasure hidden in a field. That's what those parables are about. They're about someone realizing that everything else they've been chasing in their life is worthless compared to this one thing, And the Macedonians encountered that one thing in the resurrected Christ and his gospel. And this brings us back to the deep scandal of Christianity. It's not just scandalous that we believe that most of the suffering in the world results from our own self-deification. There's something even more scandalous here. In 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, Paul uses the word charis no less than ten times. And he deploys this word in a variety of ways, and it gets translated in a variety of ways, often as grace. But he's doing it all to get at one main point, that in Jesus, God has displayed for us the nature of his love for the world, which is self-gift. This is what is so scandalous about Christianity. Every other system of thought and belief in the world, all of our inclinations are about getting for ourselves and protecting it. And yet the God of the universe shows his love for the world by giving himself away. Through the word of God, all of creation was spoken into being. In the power of the word, all things in the universe are held together. Christ himself is wisdom and beauty and riches that cannot be measured, and to him belong all power and wisdom and wealth and honor and glory and praise. But why? Why do those things belong to Christ? St. John's uh, Apocalypse, as he records his vision, which is a cosmic Eucharist liturgy, he tells us it's because this Christ... He receives all of these things, power and wisdom and wealth and honor and glory and praise, the highest ideals of what humans are after. He is worthy for these things because he is the lamb who was slain. That's completely counterintuitive. We would have expected John to say that he is worthy of these things because he is God the Son, he is divinity himself, but instead it's because he is the Lamb who was slain. It's because Christ submitted himself to the divine will, a plan which required his sacrifice to achieve our salvation. Do you see that the Macedonians, in giving themselves first to the Lord, and having their imaginations captured by this pearl of great price that is Christ himself. They are patterning themselves on Christ. And the fact that God's core attribute of love is expressed most deeply and concretely in his self-giving, the Macedonians begin to do that themselves. And they give themselves away on behalf of Christ. In giving himself to his father, Christ was willing to give up everything in submission to the divine will, which was to snatch back humanity from death and decay and bring us back into the divine life. Likewise, the Macedonians were willing to give up all their financial resources, as meager as they were, in order to bring benefit to their brothers and sisters in Christ that they had never even met. Paul is telling us that this charis, this grace, this self-gift that is the primary marker of divinity that has brought us to life in Christ is something that we can participate in concretely through our financial generosity. He uses that word so many times because he's drawing a link between how God behaves and how the church responds with grace and love. Now, I've said before, there is no such thing as theoretical generosity. And there is no such thing as theoretical Christianity. If you want to be a generous person, you have to act generously. You have to practice generosity. If you want to be a Christian, then you have to practice the ways of Christ. You have to impress yourself into the Spirit and be formed into the life of God of Christ. I love you guys. And because I love you guys, it's about to get uncomfortable, and many of you may wish that I had just stayed in Jerusalem, which frankly, it's a great city, so if that's what needs to happen, I'll go back. I told you a few weeks ago before I left that we have a very Corinthian problem. We've become enamored with celebrity pastors and slick, glittery spirituality. turns out, as we keep reading Paul's letter to the Corinthians, our Corinthian problem may go even deeper than what we initially realized. Much like the church in Corinth, we in this room have a lot of wealth. Many of you have worked very hard. You have employed wisdom. You have been met with success. Some of you have just been plain lucky, and none of that is bad. Having wealth is not bad. Christ gets misquoted too much here. Money isn't the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. There's a cavern of distinction between those two things. But if I could model myself on St. Paul's address to the Corinthians here, I would like to get very, very practical as we end this little sermon. You should know I don't know who gives what here. I don't have a list of super donors. I don't recall ever coming to any of you individually asking money to fund a specific project. This is not me looking out and sort of pinpointing a few people, okay? Because I just don't know. I don't know who gives what. But I want to tell you a couple of global stories and then a couple of local ones as we close. The first is really the timing of this text from 2 Corinthians being read in our midst this morning is uncanny. Having just been to Jerusalem and now hearing that even in Paul's day, this is already an historic bishopric in the early church. When he's pleading with people to give to the church in Jerusalem, he's doing so because he's saying, this is a central city in the Christian faith. While we were in Jerusalem, we were addressed twice by the Anglican primate of Jerusalem, and he told us that Christianity in recent decades has dwindled from 17% of the population down to 1%. In the land of Christ's birth, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, the place of Pentecost, the birth of the Church, Christianity is near extinction. Do we not have an obligation to pray for and support our brothers and sisters in Christ in the birthplace of our faith? We don't even really have to do uh, any hermeneutical juggernaut moves this morning. We could just say, we need to give to the church in Jerusalem. Similarly, in the Anglican gathering that I was a part of, I was surrounded by bishops and priests and lay people, mostly from all over the Global South, many of whom are undergoing persecution, and most of whom could barely even afford the trip to Jerusalem. And so, having had the privilege of sitting in their midst, I come to you now and I say, do we not have an obligation to our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church to pray for them and to support them as we are able? At a more local level, it's while I was in Jerusalem of all places that I was made aware of as a Hispanic congregation in the suburbs of Portland that is entering our sister diocese here as an Anglican church. These folks are going to be doing good and necessary work among people that if you've spent any time in Oregon, you know, have been historically disregarded and disadvantaged compared to most of us in this room. So as soon as I find someone who can translate Spanish to English and the other way around, we're going to be reaching out to them to learn how we can support them and partner with them in their work. Because what else could it mean to be the body of Christ? I guarantee you these people are going to need our help, and we need to learn how we can serve them. And similarly, in another suburb of Portland, there's another small church that is just now entering Anglicanism in a sister diocese of ours. And we want to be a help and a support to them in any way that we can. And this parish is struggling financially to the point that their pastor could even approach me, a church planner of a three-year-old church, and see if perhaps we could help because he hasn't been able to take paychecks in recent months. What else could it mean to be partakers in the same Eucharist cup, to have participated in the same baptism, the same spirit, the same mystical body of Christ, if we cannot provide for one another in this way? Now, I bring up these two local parishes not to suggest that we should only help other Christians or other Anglican Christians. Indeed, our generosity should burst forth to all people around us. Rather, I bring it up to highlight this reality. This this is gonna feel like we're having a business meeting, okay? (laughs) We're not. And I'll I'll close the loop on that in a second. Uh, But I I just... um, We have basically doubled in size as a parish in the last year. And that's a work of God. I mean, I met someone outside this morning who wasn't sure if he was at the right place because I still haven't bothered to put a sign up. Uh, So that's God doing that, right? Bringing people, building our community. We have doubled in size since this time last year. But our average monthly giving, internal giving and tithing, has gone down 15% this year compared to last year. And so, while our leadership team has wanted to respond to requests from outside the parish of people that need our help, we've wanted to respond with generosity, but as we've grappled with our own financial situation, we've had to hold off, and that's okay. It's good for us to figure out where we are and what we're doing, and I'm not saying any of this to shame or scold any of you, and in fact, some of you have been giving consistently with extreme generosity. I bring this up to tell you that I I just want to highlight in practical terms. We are not hoping to build our own little kingdom here at All Souls. The reason that I don't come to any of you and ask for gifts for specific projects is because that's not what giving is about. It's not about building our own legacy. It's not about building our own programs. I'm not asking you to be generous here so that we can hoard our resources. Did you catch the line at the end of our Corinthian reading? When Paul says, the goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much. The one who gathered little did not have too little. Where is that written? Paul is referencing Israel's time in the wilderness when they were fed with manna from heaven. They were given gifts, something that they didn't earn, and they were told specifically not to hoard it, but to only gather as much as they needed. You guys remember this story? Did they listen? No. (laughs) Of course not. What happened to those that hoarded the bread from heaven? It molded, and it was filled with maggots. It became rotten overnight. This is an embodied parable of life in God's kingdom. There is nothing that we have that we have not been given. And we have been met with such generosity as a parish. This building, this building is an incredible gift for which we pay hardly anything. Barely even enough to turn the side lights on. Our diocese has given us a grant each month to help us pay our bills and to keep our budget in the black. We have been met with generosity from other people in God's church and from God himself, and it is on us to respond with generosity, generosity to others. This is actually so much more important than the specific ways that we hope to be generous. Some of you have been given stewardship over incredible resources. And if you buy into the world's thinking, you will never feel secure. You will never feel that you have enough, and it will turn to mold, and you will only reap sour fruit in the end. But if you pattern your life on Christ's, you will be met with joy and freedom and singleness of heart and mind. This is the point, right? It's not about our numbers. It's not about percentages and bank accounts or anything else. It is that every single week in our Eucharist prayers, we offer up ourselves, our souls and bodies, in a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving unto God. And the reason that in the liturgy the collection of the offering happens just prior to this isn't simply a way for us to keep the lights on. That collection that happens isn't about bill-paying. It is the most immediate, tangible expression of our self-giving in response to the profligate generosity on display for us in Christ Jesus. That's what it is. That's why Jesus warned us against the love of money. It's not because money is bad. It's because we use it to display our true love to those around us. And so I say to you, Brothers and sisters, give yourselves first to the Lord in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.